episode 57, Art Bell, creator of Comedy Central and author of the book, Constant Comedy. So you can see how I, that con- I, I considered that a mistake. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and a chance to enter to win a signed copy of Art's book, Constant Comedy, go to markgraven.com slash mistake57. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you like the podcast, tell a friend or a colleague about it. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Art Bell. He's the author of the memoir. It's uh, available now. You can go and buy it and read it. Uh, Read it like I did. It's called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. So as the title implies, Art had the idea for the comedy channel. That was launched uh, by HBO and Time Warner, where he worked. And we're going to hear some stories from that today. So, Art, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, um, you know, there's there's so many interesting stories from your um, you know history and involvement with um, Comedy Central and precursors and everything. So thinking back to your career and all the things you've done, Art, what would you say is your favorite mistake? My favorite mistake? My favorite mistake, I would have to say happened in around 1992 at Comedy Central. A few months before, we had met with uh, Bill Maher. He pitched us a show called Politically Incorrect, and he wanted to make that show a talk show where people actually talked. That's what he said. We were really excited about it. So we launched the show, got off to a pretty good start. And I was responsible for marketing at that point, So I decided I was going to market Bill's show because I thought it was a great show and a great representation of the channel. So I did a campaign with our new advertising agency, Corey Kay, and it was, I thought, terrific. I showed it to everybody in programming, in marketing, showed it to my boss, the president. I showed it to the director and producer of Bill Maher's show. I did not show it to Bill Maher. Now, why do you think I didn't show it to Bill Maher? Good good, good question. Because he would have said, I hate it, don't run it. And then we would have been, you know, just sort of up against the wall, right? I mean, I knew Bill well enough by by then that he was, you know, he was a a great television host, but he was sometimes very difficult to deal with. And I didn't want to risk it, honestly. Did did you figure he would just, thinking back to the old life, Serial uh, commercial, he would have hated anything. He doesn't like anything. I, I'm not sure what I thought. I, I again, I, I think I was just erring on the side of caution because so many people had put so much work into this campaign, and it was an outdoor campaign. It was going to show up on bus sides and and uh, phone kiosks, billboards in a number of cities across America. I mean, it was a big gamble on my part. And it's not like I, I could have him say, uh, I don't like it, do it over, and then start from scratch. At that point, then you're showing Bill Maher 
several iterate, you know, do you like this? Do you like that? Do you like the other thing? Then he's in charge of marketing. Um, <laughs> and I really didn't want that. So I went ahead with the campaign because everybody said, oh, it's great. Yeah, we like it. Went ahead with the campaign and it went up all over New York City. And a day later, my assistant said, uh, Bill Maher's on the phone. Now, that was fairly unusual, not crazy unusual, but Bill didn't call me for very many things at that point. Yeah. You weren't head of programming anymore. I wasn't. I, I had been head of programming. Yeah. I was now head of marketing. Um, so I said, okay, took the call. Hey, Bill, how you doing? I said, and he said, Art, I just saw that outdoor campaign you did for my show. And I have to say, I hate it. It's terrible. He said, if, you know, if I did my job badly, you would cancel my show, right? I'd be fired. <laughs> I said, yeah. And he said, well, I think you did the, you're doing your job very, very badly. Oh. And I think you should be fired. And I said, well, wait a second, Bill. I'm sorry. And he cut me off and he said, I've made several phone calls. <laughs> I am having you fired. And he hung up. <laughs> wow. So you can see how I, that con I, I considered that a mistake. And as a matter of fact, Almost immediately after I hung up, I got a call from someone who at HBO who was not really that involved with the show, but knew Bill and everything else. And she had heard from Bill and she said, Art, you really should have showed Bill that, <laughs> that, that campaign. And she was in charge of talent at HBO. So she knew what she was talking about. And I said, yeah, I know. I probably made a mistake, but uh, he's going to get me fired. And she said, really? I said, yeah. I said, would you get me fired if it was you? I, she said, no, honey, I'd never get you fired. I said, okay. <laughs> anyway, as it turned out, I told my boss, the president, what happened, because he was basically the only one who could really fire me, uh, except for the board. And he said, yeah, Bill did call me, but no, I am not going to fire you. <laughs> I told him I like the campaign and you're not going to be fired. So that is the story of the mistake. Now, I can tell you the story of why it's my favorite mistake. Okay, a few months later, the campaign had run. We'd gotten some press on it, too, some attention for it. And believe me, when you run a marketing campaign, the best thing you can get is press because that's free advertising of your advertising. Okay, so we thought we were doing pretty well with it. But then I got a call from Alan Kay, who was the head of our agency. And he said, hey, good news, Art. We just got nominated for an award. I said, you're kidding. For what? He goes, for Bill Maher's advertising campaign. I said, oh my gosh, anything but that. Now I'm going to have to deal with that all over again? He said, oh, don't worry. He said, just, you know what, come to the, it's an awards dinner. It's really fun. All the ad, ad guys from all over New York are there. It's a very prestigious award. So uh, I said, fine. A few weeks later, we're getting into the car and Alan says, you're never going to guess who's hosting the award show. I said, I don't know. Who's hosting the award show? He says, Bill Maher. I said, <laughs> I said, you are kidding me. I said, you know what? If I wrote this wow. in a novel, people would say that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. So now we're going to the awards ceremony. Bill Maher is hosting. I'm sitting in the audience. It comes to the point where he's announcing the award for best outdoor campaign. And he says the nominees are, and he, t and he takes a look, and he gets to the second or third nominee, and it's Comedy Central. 
and they're projecting the awards behind him. And he takes a look at the award, turns around, takes a look at, at the campaign rather that's being projected. And he says, you know, that's great advertising. <laughs> and I just rolled my eyes. Reads the thing, the envelope, please. We win the award. We won the gold award for best advertising campaign in New York, best outdoor advertising campaign that year. And I just couldn't stop laughing to myself. And, you know, at the end of the night, we're high-fiving. We sit around. We're talking about everything. Bill Moore walks by our table. And I said, hey, Bill. And he didn't say anything. Just walked by. <laughs> That's why it's my favorite mistake. Wow. I mean, that, that is, I mean, you know, I believe you, but it's a, it's an unbelievable story, like you said, but um, yeah. So, I mean, many of the uh, favorite mistake stories in this podcast series are of the category of like, oh, here's a mistake. I wouldn't want to repeat that. I learned from it. This is in the category of a quote unquote mistake that actually turned into something very positive. Do you still, do you have the, uh, the trophy or the award? There in the office. Uh, yeah, I do, but I don't know exactly where it is. Um, yeah, uh, but right. uh, yeah, it's one I cherish for a long time. Um, you know, you, you ask, you mentioned the fact that we learn from our mistakes and I'm, it's a little bit of a head scratcher to figure out what I learned from that mistake. I mean, if you ask me, would I do it over again exactly the same way? I'm not sure I wouldn't say no. I mean, say yes, rather. I, I Because... I was really concerned that it would, he would shut down the campaign. On the other hand, let's have a conversation. What, what would have been the right way to do it? Well, I mean, you, you brought up the one thing that sort of occurred to me is like, well, you, you said once the campaign had been developed, you didn't want to run it past him because then he could shoot it down. And like you said, bringing him in early on and running a couple concepts by him. Now, like you said, is Bill Maher running Comedy Central Marketing? Um, that, that that's that's tough. I mean, maybe that is a situation where you need to just um, roll with the punches and maybe I mean, you know, uh, did you have future ad campaigns for politically incorrect? Did you do you do you go to the boss and say, hey, Bill Maher might be really upset about this. Do you have my back? Like maybe you need to cover your bases that way. I don't, um, I don't know. That's listen, I figured my boss had my back anyway, because that's what your boss is supposed to do. I think. What I learned is you have to make sure that the first time the talent sees a campaign for his or her show is not when it's being shown or exhibited or run on the radio or run on television. It's, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, it's got no context. You know, you can't answer the question, why this campaign and not something else? You can't answer the question, why did you use that picture and not another one? You can't answer the question, um, you know, what do you hope to achieve by the campaign and uh, all of those things. Now, I was I was new to marketing and I did not know much about marketing. I was sort of learning on the job, even though I was a fairly seasoned executive at that point. But since then, and throughout my career from that point in television, I made sure that I gave what I, what I called a heads up look to the talent, you know, and I usually started by going to either, um, the producer of the show or somebody close to them, possibly the head of the programming department and said, look, we got to get this in front of so-and-so. How do you want to do it? Well, I was going to ask one other, um, you know, kind of groundbreaking, um, 
program that um, Comedy Central did was the live commentary of the State of the Union address, uh, address, State of the Union undressed. And so, you know, Al Franken did that the first year and then Dennis Miller. Did did you follow that approach of of sharing any of the advertising with them or was that different because this was more of a one-off special? It was a little different because it was a one-off special. Um, And on top of that, it was not so personal to the hosts. You know what I mean? It wasn't Al Franken presents the State of the Union undressed for Comedy Central with a picture of Al and, you know, or, or something like that. Al Franken was almost, and I don't mean to say it like this. Al Franken was a feature of the broadcast that year, but Al Franken was not the focus of the campaign. The focus of the campaign the first year, as you can imagine, was the fact that we were as audacious as we were to actually comment live during the State of the Union address on what the president was saying. Um, So that was the focus. So (laughs) that said, that said, I always worried about what the talent was going to say about anything that we were doing that wasn't just what the talent was doing on the talent show. You know, anything could could set some of these people off. It was really quite something. Now, one thing, and I thought this was a funny story from the book uh, with Al Franken, that he almost that that he did stomp off the set a couple hours before that first State of the Union undressed because he he apparently didn't realize it was going to be live. That was yeah, that is the story. <laughs> I mean, we we had hired Al Franken. We were all excited about it. Al Franken at the time was pretty big deal because he was working on on uh, he was writing and performing on Saturday Night Live, which as you know is live. So it's not like he had no concept of what, you know, working live was all about. So we brought him in, the the director of the show, a guy named Billy Kimball, who was also on the show, was terrific. And he, you know, he rehearsed for a week. And everybody knew what they were doing. And it was really, you know, more planned than just, you know, going out there and throwing yourself at it. But, and it wasn't, it wasn't hours. It was more like an hour before the show. They had finished rehearsing and Billy announced, Hey, everybody take, you know, take half an hour, relax, get yourself ready. We are going live in one hour. And <laughs> Al looked over and said, We are going live. He said, Wait a second. We're doing this live. I thought this was going to be live to tape. I didn't know this was going to be live. I'm not doing this live. I'm going to go talk, call my agent right now. Oh, my gosh. And he stormed out. And uh, <laughs> we spent about 10 seconds looking at each other saying, <laughs> okay, was there a mistake what here? What, yeah. where's, where's plan B? Was there a mistake? I, if it was a mistake, it wasn't my mistake at that point. I mean, we had a vice president of talent and development. Her name was Lori Zacks. And she was as buttoned up an executive as I've ever seen in the entertainment industry. She's very successful today. She's produced a lot of shows. She ended up running after him. And she went out the door and we all wondered what she was going to say to them and say to him and whether it was going to work. Five minutes later, Al Franken walked back in and said, okay, we're good. And that was it. You know, what, what was Dennis Miller um, a better fit for that sort of ad lib show that was uh, live that way? Well, I think he certainly acknowledged the fact that he was going to be ad libbing 
as he went into it. But like most comedians and stand-up comedians, Dennis's act was was written. You know, he he knew what he was going to say most of the time in his act. Ne- we really required Al and Dennis and the other people who did this to improvise. Some people are great at it. Some people are terrible at it. You know, Bob Hope famously said, you wouldn't say that if my writers were here. Um, and uh, Al did a fantastic job. So whether he had faith in his ability or not, he did a beautiful job of of reacting to what was going on. So did Dennis. Uh, so it wasn't that Al was not capable of doing it. He probably even knew in his, in his head he could probably pull it off. He was just, by his own account, surprised. Once again, do not surprise the talent. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, there's that, that you know, expression, it's impossible to over-communicate um, and making sure that we're on the same page. That, I think, is a lesson that applies in a lot of corporate settings for, for the listener. Well, yes, although I will make a distinction. Um, when you're telling your boss bad news, for example, and that's, that's the common, you know, that's the common example of like, okay, so what do you tell when, when there's a really bad piece of information? And the answer is, by everyone's standard, you tell bad news early, as early as possible to the people to, you know, for whom it's going to make a difference, especially your boss. Um, and if your boss gets mad, your boss gets mad. I mean, again, what you don't want is your boss to stumble on the information. Here's the difference. Talent is not your boss. Talent, as it was explained to me early in my television career, talent, they're the guys who get out on stage in front of the camera with the lights on them, putting their themselves on the line in a, perform, in a performance. So it doesn't matter all the people that are behind them, the writers and the producers and the me and, and, and everybody else, doesn't matter. We're not there anymore. Now it's them and it's up to them to make it work. So when they get cranky and they say, I want blue M&Ms in my, in my, <laughs> uh, in my dressing room, you say, okay, we'll get you blue M&Ms. Now, that can go too far, as, as you can imagine. I mean, talent does, does take advantage. I worked with, famously, with Nancy Grace, who was on Court TV when I was running Court TV, she, I, I would have to talk her into going on the air. Now, she had a five-day-a-week show at 5 o'clock. I would have to talk her into going on the air lots. You know, like, <laughs> it seemed like three out of five days. I'm not sure it was that much. But, you know, I get a call from the booth. Nancy's upset about something. She doesn't like the wardrobe. She doesn't like this, that. You know, she's refusing to go on, and we've got 10 minutes to air. So, you know, this is, this is talent is sometimes very difficult to handle. And that's why we had at Comedy Central and most places have a vice president of talent because the people who are good at this are brilliant at it. And Lori Zacks, who I mentioned, she said that she's become known in in Hollywood as the talent whisperer, which (laughs) cracked me up because, but I, I say in my book, I even say in my book, she was spectacular at it. I don't know how she pulled it off, but I would not have been spectacular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure some people, you know, there's it's just they, they have a way, they have a knack for it, or maybe they have a background in psychology or uh, who knows. Um, so, um, you know, with the, the book, and again, our guest is um, Art Bell, author of the, the memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Um, 
is it risky to write a memoir? Because there are some very detailed retellings of, of meetings and things that were happening at, at HBO and, and through the Comedy Channel and Evolution and the Comedy Central. Like, do you have to get lawyers involved to make sure that you're not saying the wrong thing or making a mistake in, in writing it? Well, you can get lawyers involved. I did check with some lawyers about whether I should get lawyers involved. As it turns out, um, you're right. Memoir writing comes with a certain degree of risk, partly because a memoir is not an autobiography or a history. A memoir is based on your memory, in this case, my memory of what happened. There's a lot of dialogue in this book. I remembered specific lines from specific meetings and usually the important people who were there. But I was, you know, I was recreating dialogue based on my recollection and a few important lines. That's not really the problem. The problem is uh, when people think they've been libeled. Um, and libel is a very specific law in the U.S., and it's, it's pretty easy going on guys like me. Libel requires you to not only say something nasty about the person, but you have to say something nasty knowing it's not true, and with the intention of slamming the person and have the person not be able to get work again in that person's field. So that's a pretty high bar all in. So when I, I started looking at, you know, researching it, I found that there are very few lawsuits against memoir, memoirists. There's very few challenges to memoirists. In this case, it ha this stuff happened 30 years ago, basically. It's Comedy Central's 30th anniversary if you can believe that, on April 1st coming up. Yeah, it's really it's really incredible. So, you know, I, I and most of the people have were treated pretty nicely. But I will say this, all of the people were treated fairly. You know, there's a saying among memoirists, if you don't want me to depict you badly in your memoir, then don't be a jerk in real life. And I, yeah. I think that applies. You know, I, I did not go out of my way to make someone look bad. I did describe the situation. And if your conclusion is that person was a jerk, there you have it. Sure. Now, I think somebody who comes across um, very well in the book when it comes to, you know, telling stories about talent is uh, John Stewart. And as much as I loved his work on The Daily Show when he started that in um, 99, um, I, I didn't know because, frankly, I, I didn't have cable television until 1995. So I, I didn't even know of um, the show Short Attention Span Theater that yeah. he was a co-host of. I was wondering if you could tell the story um, from the book. Um, I think there was something that might have been you were kind of reflecting. Was that a mistake to make a decision about that show that surprised him? Well, that was another case where the, the talent was surprised. Uh and I don't even know the extent to which he was surprised. I heard that from him. And the, and the, the setup is John Stewart was um, hosting Short Attention Span Theater with a co-host named Patty Rossborough, another comedian. And they'd been on the air for a few months. And mind you, this was John's first job in television. And it was not quite his first job, but he was really a baby comic. I mean, he, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of experience. As soon as I saw him on television, I knew he was great. You know, everybody, like, everybody, you know, you're watching the talent on Comedy Channel at that point, trying to figure out who's good and who's not, not great. And he immediately connected. Patty, 
it wasn't that she was bad, but John was doing so much of the talking and she was just doing so much of the laughing uh, that she became kind of the audience. Now, I thought that was a good thing because, you know, when you and I laugh on the podcast and people listening or watching will laugh too. Um, but I wasn't in charge of that show and people said, you know what? I think John would do better by himself. So they let Patty go. Now, I don't know to what extent he got a heads up. All I know is I got a phone call saying, listen, we told John that Patty was leaving and he is fit to be tied. I mean, he is, he's threatening to quit. He won't, he's, you know, he's really upset. You got to come down here and, <laughs> and talk him off the ledge. Now, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm not so great at this. That's why I'm not a talent, you know, a talent <laughs> person, nor was I ever. But I said, okay, I'll come down and talk to John. And I did. I walked in and I said, hey, John, um, listen, we just thought it was really important. Uh, and given that you were doing so well, we just thought the show would really benefit and the channel would benefit. And it was best for everyone. Patty's going to be fine. And he just said, look, you can't do that. You cannot fire someone like that. <laughs> At which point I really almost wanted to just laugh because we're in a corporation, right? This is a business. The whole idea that you can't fire someone like that. Maybe, maybe that's his, his inexperience. I, I think that was his yeah, inexperience. Yeah. Also, it was more than that, though. It was his empathy. I mean, he really cared about Patty. It's not like they were pals from way back or anything. But she was his co-host and they got along and he was looking out for her. And he really felt that we had crossed the line by, by, uh, by letting her go, especially without consulting with him about whether we should let her go. So that was, that was a moment. But, you know, at that point, I really realized that not only was John great on television, not only was he smart and funny, but he had a lot of empathy. Uh, and he was principled. And was willing to take a stand for his principles. Now, all of that showed up, as America knows, on The Daily Show. No surprise to me after that. And by the way, I I got to know John after that. He was a terrific guy, uh, easy to work with for the most part, and uh, fun to hang out with. So that was John Stewart. I yeah, because you know you, he comes across very favorably in that story because I think, as you pointed out in the book, a lot of people would kill to now have a solo show. Exactly. Say, well, right. sorry, I feel bad for you, Patty, but like they and 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 for him to react that way, I think shows a certain uh, character that comes through very strongly. So I, I sure. do admire I'll, hearing that or I'll admire you, him for that. I'll go you one better. A lot of people who co-host are constantly whispering into the producer's <laughs> ear. You know, I could do this on my own. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't need I don't need that person schlepping along. Um, but that was not John. So at that point, you were still um, head of programming. And then later on, I mean, I think you might have even, um, as you write about in the book, already was, oh, I was going to say, well, do I say departed from? No, you, I mean, you were fired, as, as you talk about in the book. And maybe we can come back to that. Right. That briefly. ended my eight years at Comedy Central. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, it's a surprise that, so I know that Jon Stewart had left. Um, he was doing a show on MTV. Was it, you know, you, you might be speculating because this wasn't your decision and you might not have even been around it. But gosh, it seems like a, a, in hindsight, a mistake to not hire him to be the original host. I mean, I remember watching Craig Kilburn and he was fine. But John Stewart took that to a whole new level three years well, later when he was hired. I, I was around when uh, 
when the Daily Show was being produced, I was not producing it. The producers were not happy with Craig. They were not happy with Craig. He just wasn't putting it over the top, according to them. Now, I remember Craig. I'm not even going to comment. I just don't remember what was going on with his performance or what was, you know, for all we know, uh, it was something else that was going on on the set that they didn't they didn't like. They got Jon Stewart back from MTV. And, you know, sometimes in television and in movies, because it's a collaborative effort, uh, magic happens. And this was one of those cases. You had the right producers. You had the right format. You had the right host. And it all became spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it sure did. Um, one other thing I want to ask you about, maybe, you know, not even getting into um, the story of, of being fired, but there was a, a story you told in the book where I think this was earlier in this might have been um, comedy channel days still, where one of the executives, Michael Fuchs, was asked about the programming quality on a scale of one to ten. And he said, oh, it was a two or a three. You, you quit and then or you, you said you were quitting. Can you tell the story about like rethinking that? Was that was that a mistake that you were, you were able to walk back? Um, I, I, I did. Th- there was an instance around that time that I did uh, threaten to quit. Yes, it wasn't in front of Michael Fuchs. Michael Fuchs was the most powerful man in Hollywood at the time. He was proclaimed the most powerful man in Hollywood uh, by New York Times Magazine. They had a cover story on him. If I was in Michael's office, I would not have quit. You do what you're told when you're in Michael's office. Okay. <laughs> you don't grandstand. You don't argue. None of that. None of that. Certainly uh, in my case. I was actually talking to uh, somebody else who was uh, at that time the president of Comedy Channel. Remember, I was a junior, very junior person when I started this whole thing. I didn't know anything about programming. The fact that they gave me a job on this channel that I recommended that they start and showed them how to start – I was enthusiastic. But when we got into it, I realized that everybody had to be focused on making sure that it survived. And survival was the issue. Don't misunderstand. I went to work every day wondering if they were going to pull the plug on the comedy channel because that's how much incoming bad press we were getting. That's how much anxiety was going on on the part of Michael Fuchs and the other people at HBO who had you know, taking a risk with this thing. So my boss at the time was the president of this channel, the comedy channel, and he was having a moment of crisis. It was late. It was after work and he was hanging his head and he said, I, you know, Art, do you really think this thing can make it? I don't know. Everything's going wrong. I don't know if this person knows what they're doing. I don't know if that person knows what they're doing. And that made me incredibly mad. And I snapped. I really did. And I don't usually raise my voice. I don't know if you can tell from my demeanor. I'm pretty calm. Uh, and you have to be pretty calm in that, in that business. But I really snapped because I, I said, look, Dick, if this is the way you feel, then maybe I'm working for the wrong channel because this is not about wondering whether we're going to be successful. This is about making sure that we're going to be successful up until the moment when someone says we're shutting you down and they haven't done that. And until then, we have to project to the 400 people who are now working on this baby confidence. And we have to keep figuring out how to make it better. And I stood up and I started to walk out. And he called me back and slapped me around. No, he didn't slap me. He calmed (laughs) me down. 
And he sure. said, I'm sorry, Art, you're absolutely right. And I did not quit. Well, I mean, you know, Comedy Central now, like you said, Art, 30 years later, um, has, has been such a phenomenon in different ways. Um, you know, bringing South Park to a mass audience and which uh, I'm uh, forever appreciative of as a huge fan of, of that. But, um, it, it, you know, the, the, the early days of the Comedy Channel seem like many startups. There's a great idea. You announce it. And then two days later, Viacom announces a competing channel. Do you think do you think that, did they have that in the works or was that was that just purely reactive? Like, oh, we, we've got to get out in front and we'll figure it out. My thought at the time that they did the they launched, they announced with a press release a day or two after our our uh, our announcement. We had been working on it for four to six months at that point. I think they hadn't been working on it. Remember, they they launched six months after us, and I think you're seeing that it's a six month, you know, all hands on deck. You can get the thing up in six months. They would have launched right against us if they could. I have since talked to people at at uh, their channel, which was called Ha, the Comedy Network, and uh, they didn't quite cop to it. Like they said, oh, yeah, we had, you know, it came up at a meeting a few weeks earlier just by chance. Maybe we should do some comedy stuff. You know, but they were they were not, not really doing it. What they were doing was Nick at Night, which was sitcoms, old sitcoms. And that was that was their head start on that. Yeah. But, you know, as you talk about in, in the book, I mean, there are the startup challenges of um, getting up and running and then you've got the concept and then you're testing that in the marketplace. Um, you know, it seems like the original concept in a way was um, MTV for comedy. You would show right. clips that were kind of the equivalent of music videos and you would have a VJ and that concept was something like the people in startup circles now would say that there was a pivot, um, you know. Yes. Or some adjustments in the programming. Right. Well, the smart thing was that we pivoted. I mean, we didn't call it pivoting at that point, but we, we made changes as quickly as we could. One of the reasons that that strategy didn't work was because we had to get the permission of the unions to use the clips. And we did. And we got in writing. However, a few weeks before we launched, we got a call from the Directors Guild saying we changed our minds. Somebody on the board said, I don't like this. And so we are withdrawing our support. And suddenly the pile of comedy clips that we had created, we could no longer use. So who knows? I mean, short form comedy is not, um, you know, is not an untried concept. I mean, you look at YouTube today, that's how kids absorb the stuff and people absorb the stuff. And in, th- in those days, there wasn't an outlet for it so much, but people always talked about their favorite scenes and their favorite moments. We cultivated that, but then it didn't work for those re- those reasons and maybe others. I mean, we never really got a chance to explore whether it would have worked, but we had to figure out if we were going to survive as a comedy network, we had to figure out what that network was going to look like. And that's, I think, a very general business challenge of do we stick with it and give it more time or do we pivot? That's a judgment call and, and you do your best and I'm glad uh, the Comedy Channel um, figured it out so it could survive and, and evolve into Comedy Central, as, uh, as you write about in the book, uh, as it merged right. with Ha, the Comedy Network. Right. The two channels were merged at the end of uh, a year after we launched. And that was, a, that was a disappointment to me, honestly. I thought we had the better concept. We had certainly built an audience by then. 
We had a, a mix of clips and stand-up comedy, some movies. We had Mystery Science Theater 3000 on the air. We had some sketch comedy, Kids in the Hall. We were developing some shows. We were off to the races from my point of view. But um, it was a fight for distribution. It was a fight for advertising. And the heads of Viacom and Time Warner were not happy just spending money on this endless fight because nobody was really going to say uncle. And uh, so they decided to merge us. Yeah. Um, so um, maybe one question for you, Art. And again, our guest is um, Art Bell, um, not to be confused with the late, late night, overnight radio talk show host, Art Bell. I hope, do you, do you I have, hope not because you, he's no longer with us. Correct. <laughs> but did, have, have you run across that? I, I had a guest previously, I forget the episode number, who was uh, Stephen King, not that Stephen King. Right, right. You know what? I was in the media business in television. He was in radio. So I'd go to a media conference of any sort and they'd say, Art Bell, you know, when I'm checking into the hotel because nobody knew what he looked like. And I wasn't, I wasn't, nobody really knew who I was. So it, it happened quite a bit when I was out and about, but never to anybody's, I mean, never to my detriment. I mean, it wasn't a confusion that caused some kind of horrifying story of some sort. <laughs> sure. Um, so maybe a final question for you, Art, and I'll tease, you know, if people want to hear and, and they can read all of these stories about the idea, the launch, the merger, um, there's a lot of great stuff in, in the book. So I hope people will check it out. But there was one reflection that you shared in the book after you retold your story of, of being fired. Um, I forget if you used the word mistake, but you, you sort of came to understand um, when people were fired to look at. I guess th those folks differently that in the past you had made assumptions. If somebody got fired, they in some way sort of deserved it. Am I recounting no, that's exactly that accurately? Right. That's yeah. exactly right. I, I spent a lot of time hiring people and occasionally firing people, but my understanding of people who got fired was that they did something horribly wrong or didn't show up for work or, you know, messed up. Uh, and suddenly I was fired not for messing up, but for having been so completely involved in the launch and the formation and the, and the direction of the comedy network, the comedy channel and then Comedy Central, that when they brought in new management, because they fired my boss, the president, the new management basically fired everybody. And, uh, and when he fired me, he said, look, you got your fingerprints all over this network. I can't keep you here because I got to go my own way. And that's, that was a lesson for me. That was a lesson for me. It didn't make it sting any less, I have to say. But from that point on, when I was considering hiring somebody, if they had been fired, I'd say, okay, they're still worth considering. They're not just a complete screw up of some sort. And that was a big lesson for me. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that lesson in the book. And thank you for sharing that lesson. And others here today. So um, Art Bell is our guest. Um, you can find the book on Amazon and uh, other uh, resellers, retailers. Um, his website, if you want to go check it out, is artbellwriter.com. And there's a lot of other great stories uh, from the book, um, kind of Art writing about things he did after Comedy Central, kind of early days of, of comedy on the internet, and then um, going to court TV and um, really, really enjoyed um, reading that. So, Art, uh, even though I didn't have a chance to watch 
Comedy Central in the early days. It's really interesting to go back and hear uh, more about how it came to be and what those early days were. So really, well, really thank you. It. You know, speaking of that, I just want to mention one more thing, and, and that is that since April 1st is the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central, a friend of mine who was there, Vinny Favalli, and I are doing a series of 12 podcasts where we are interviewing people from the early days of comedy who have since gone on to brilliant careers in the entertainment business. Um, and we uh, are launching that on April 1st, and it's a really fun podcast. And I, I encourage everybody to check it out if they want to hear some stories from the real, the people who lived it. Yeah. I will check that out and subscribe, and I'll put a link to that in um, the show notes. So thank you, Beautiful. Art, for mentioning Thank you very that. much. Yeah, awesome. So um, again, our guest has been um, Art Bell. His book is Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. I didn't get a chance to ask you about that part of the it was, subtitle. It was actually something that Michael Fuchs said three months into it. He said, it took a comedy channel <laughs> to make me lose my sense of humor. And I had momentarily lost mine when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you found it again. I'm glad you've got it back. Or as you, as you said in the book, the, uh, the comedians, maybe this is part of it too. Uh, see, I'm laughing, which shows I'm not a comedian. You said the comedians would have just sat there and said, that's funny. That's right. No laughter involved. <laughs> that's funny or that's not funny. <laughs> well, Art, thank you. I've enjoyed this. This has been uh, fun and really interesting. So I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks again for being a guest. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Thanks again to Art Bell for being such a fantastic guest. And don't forget, if you want to enter to win a signed copy of Art's book, Constant Comedy, you can go to markraven.com slash mistake 57. Coming up on Thursday's episode is the legendary management consultant, speaker, author, Tom Peters. You'll hear about his favorite mistake. You'll hear about some surprisingly long hair that he had at one point and more. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.